The following PTJ podcast is the 40th Mary McMillan Lecture, delivered by Dr. Carolee Winstein at the opening ceremonies of PT 2009, the annual conference and exposition of the American Physical Therapy Association, on June 10th, 2009, in Baltimore, Maryland. Introducing Dr. Winstein is APTA President Dr. R. Scott Ward. It is now my distinct pleasure and honor to introduce Dr. Carolee Winstein as the 40th Mary McMillan Lecturer. Dr. Winstein received her Master of Science degree in Physical Therapy from the University of Southern California, where she currently is Professor and Director of Research. In addition, she directs the Motor Behavior and Neurorehabilitation Laboratory in the Division of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy. For the past 22 years, Dr. Winstein's collaborative and interdisciplinary research and publications have focused on the motor control, rehabilitation, and recovery of goal-directed behaviors in healthy, aging, and brain-damaged conditions. Most recently, her interest has shifted to the emergent field of social cognitive neuroscience and how what we learn from the intersection of these sciences can be applied to the design of more effective neurorehabilitation treatments. Her research program spans the spectrum from small-scale, laboratory-based feasibility studies to large-scale, multi-site clinical trial projects, the most recent of which is a five-year, $12.2 million NIH-funded Phase three randomized controlled trial entitled the, the Interdisciplinary Comprehensive Arm Rehabilitation Evaluation Stroke Initiative. In addition to her active research program, she led and brought to fruition the very first physical therapy clini clinical research network. This was funded by the Foundation for Physical Therapy and it hosted four clinical trials across a range of disability groups from pediatric cerebral palsy to low back disorder. Most recently, she and her colleagues at USC in the Biomedical Engineering Department formed a partnership with Rehabilitation Engineering at Rancho Los Amigos National Rehabilitation Hospital and successfully competed for a NIDER Department of Education Rehabilitation Engineering Research Center focused grant on aging with disability. Please join me in honoring this year's Mary McMillan Lecture, Dr. Carolee Winstein. for giving me this tremendous honor. I have to confess that over the past year I found the preparation of this lecture to be one of the most daunting tasks I have ever engaged in. Those of you that have visited us at USC know that in the hallway there are two portraits, one of Jacqueline Perry and the other one of Helen Hislop. And every day when I go into my office, I pass by these portraits, and these portraits follow you. <laughs> and when I'm walking into my office, they say, are you working on your lecture? And when I leave my office, they say, so how much did you get done on your lecture today? Anyway, in fact, there were times when I almost gave up, and in my head, had half-drafted the letter of what I would say. It went something like this. Dear Scott, because of extenuating circumstances, <laughs> utter paralysis, and a complete tangle, I will be unable to deliver the Macmillan Lecture this year. Can I take a rain check? In parallel with daunting, I have been one, it has been one of the most exhilarating experiences of my life. 
How could that be? I'll focus on the exhilarating part. After all, how often do we indulge ourselves in reflection, in taking the time to read about our founders and about the incredible individuals who have given so much to advance our profession? I want to thank you for giving me that opportunity, the opportunity to learn from many of the people who came before me, many I never had an opportunity to know, and others, many of whom are sitting here in front of me today. I especially want to thank Helen Hislop, not only for her vision, but for supporting me in my career at USC. When I reread the 10th Macmillan Lecture, The Not-So-Impossible Dream, it inspired my title, The Best We Can Be Is Yet to Come. I want to publicly thank Helen for that. I, too, have a dream, which I will share with you some 30 years later. Before I go there, would you all indulge me in a little mind exercise? I got this idea after I heard the Dalai Lama speak at the Society for Neuroscience meeting several years ago. Somehow he managed to create a situation in which literally tens of thousands of people in several large ballrooms felt that they were engaged in an intimate fireside chat in his living room. I can see some of you getting a little nervous. Don't worry, we're not all going to break out singing Kumbaya or We Shall Overcome. It is true that in spite of all the differences we can point to among the educators, the clinicians, and the researchers gathered among us, all... uh, Actually, I forgot. Yeah, you got the Dalai Lama slide. Okay. All of us share one thing in common. There is between those who work in the various specialty areas, we all have one thing in common, one thing that brought us into this profession. And it is likely that same reason that keeps us doing what we do. What is it? I don't think I have to remind you. It is the patients we touch and care for. Everyone here has a story of someone whose life was touched during a time of need. This experience was likely mutually beneficial, not a one-way street, because we are a caring profession, and we will always be one. I want you to remember that, and then I want you to dig down deep and ask yourself today, in 2009, how can our profession achieve its full potential? That is the question I asked myself in preparing my words for today. If I let myself imagine what it would look like, I imagine a time when our profession displays more self-confidence than arrogance, a time when we can anticipate change and seek opportunities with nimbleness rather than with rigidity and isolation. I imagine a time when we are secure enough to seek advice and guidance from outside, and even from our competition, and not only from those who agree with our position. A time when we meet new knowledge and advances in science and healthcare with a willingness to learn, engage in discussion, instead of resisting and obstructing informing dialogue. Finally, I imagine a time when educators, practitioners, and researchers are valued equally for what they do, as long as the highest standards of excellence are what guide their efforts. I see two important objectives to achieving our full potential. The first is to invest in building strong academic centers in physical therapy. The second objective is to have a uniform commitment to setting the highest standards of excellence for our education, our research, and our practice. I will build an argument for the necessity of these objectives and through a few stories that come from my personal journey. I do not suggest suggest these objectives lightly. I fully acknowledge that taking this course will not be easy. It will take considerable effort, but it will be worth every second of it. There certainly will be resistance along the way, and there will be the many competing goals some very practical and others motivated by the usual suspects, fear, greed, power, or selfish motivations. We must resist the temptation to compromise and keep our ships sailing high in what stands to be one of the most challenging times 
we have ever experienced for our profession and the healthcare system in which we function. I strongly believe that the necessary integration between education, research, and practice is only possible if we shore up our academic foundations. I will offer some suggestions for how we might accomplish this long-range objective in strategic and incremental steps. The good news is that we already have an excellent start with a dozen or more programs from across the country leading the way. One, for example, right here in Baltimore at the University of Maryland. But where we go next to to, uh, is critical, especially at this time in our history. First, I feel compelled to reveal a few disclaimers and confessions about my own experiences that have helped shape my thinking on the subject. After all, these days we strive for as much transparency as possible, don't we? Well, not complete transparency, or I would have had to come out here wrapped in cellophane, and that would have been a little overboard, don't you think? My California flower child anti-war hippie days can't be completely forgotten, however. There is this impression that people have of Californians that we're all loose, pot-smoking party animals. Well, it's true to some extent. (laughs) Once I gave a keynote talk at the Rehab Institute of Chicago, and Richard Harvey introduced me, and I had used the bamboo border for PowerPoint, and he introduced me, you know, from California. And then he said, y- your border, isn't, aren't, isn't that a marijuana plant? <laughs> okay. So I never owned my own physical therapy practice. I have never chaired a physical therapy education program. I have never put together an entire curriculum for a highly ranked entry-level education program. And I have never managed a physical therapy service in a hospital or outpatient setting. What this should tell you is that I know where my strengths and weaknesses lie. My strengths lie in the ability to think, to analyze problems, to recognize quality, sound thinking, and scholarship. And those skills have definitely shaped my vision and how I conduct my research and teaching, almost to a fault. Sometimes overthinking the problem. A long time ago, I realized that there are many others who are much more capable than I of providing leadership in these other areas. In each case, I have tremendous respect for the people who have led these charges, and particularly those who have done them well. I can only hope that my remarks will resonate equally well with them. On the other hand, it is true that I have had the privilege of spending the majority of my professional life in an academic setting, both in research and education. So at least part of my perspective comes from not uh, just academic physical therapy, but in a, a small part in the workings of a major research one institution, one that is currently engaged in its own new strategic planning process. I might add that in addition to strategic planning, USC has just purchased two hospitals, and is creating the USC Academic Medical Center. The future of physical therapy in this academic medical center is not altogether clear. I believe this example from my own institution is a real manifestation of a much bigger problem that will require our focused attention. I am particularly fortunate in my academic experiences that my academic experiences have been molded by the quality and high standards of the institutions where I studied and worked. Similarly, most of my clinical experience has been significantly influenced by the quality of one of the major freestanding rehabilitation hospitals in the country, Rancho Los Amigos National Rehabilitation Hospital. Having said that, I must emphasize that it is not the buildings, even though they might be named the Jacqueline Perry Institute at Rancho, but it is the quality and high standards embodied and exemplified through the colleagues and coworkers I have had the good fortune to work with along the way. I have had the tremendous fortune and pleasure of working with a group of extremely talented individuals over my career in these three settings and across the country through many collaborations. Many of you are here today. I think you know who you are. 
you have and will continue to have a tremendous impact on my vision for physical therapy. We could argue that many academ my academic experience outweighs my clinical experience, and therefore my comments are biased toward the thing I know best. Certainly, there have been tremendous changes in the practice arena since I left it full-time in 1982. I would simply respond to this by saying that I have not closed my eyes to clinical practice over the last 27 years. I teach entry-level DPT students who go out into the practice environment and, and who come back and tell me about it, and I listen to them carefully. I conduct my own clinical trial research in neural rehabilitation in a network of outpatient practice settings across the nation, making me acutely aware of the inconsistencies in practice standards and downright chaos that exists in reimbursement. I provide continuing education to experienced practicing clinicians in neurological physical therapy. And in my young age, I also see physical therapy clinical practice from the perspective of the consumer, both for myself and my family and friends. These activities keep me informed and provide a reliable thermostat of the state of clinical practice today in the United States and in Canada and how it is viewed from the outside. I've learned over the many years of experience in academia and during my former life in clinical practice that good things take time. And nothing good comes easily without effort. But I also have learned that if you keep your eye on the ball, have faith in your abilities, and most importantly, strive for excellence using quality metrics, you will ultimately succeed. It might take several tries, but in the process, you have stretched your capacity. And best of all, you did it without lowering your standards for excellence. So we can stretch our minds. The benefits that emerge from this approach are contagious and attractive to all stakeholders, both inside and out, to consumers and other healthcare providers, to students, to colleagues, and to educators and researchers. I'll give you a recent example from my own work in connection with the implementation of a principle-based complex intervention of stroke rehabilitation in the context of the eye care trial. We are fortunate to be working with very experienced therapists who either have specialty certification in neurological physical therapy or extensive clinical experience in neurological rehabilitation in the outpatient setting where the trial takes place. In several cases, very experienced clinicians have not met our 90% criterion level for standardization of the intervention protocol. While their performance was more than acceptable for the natural clinical setting, it did not meet the high bar we set for the clinical trial. Our decision to request a second set of standardization materials will certainly delay the initiation of patient enrollment for several of our sites. However, the trade-off is a no-brainer. We believe the benefits of focusing on excellence far outweigh the detriments. In fact, it allowed us to engage in a mutually beneficial dialogue with our clinical colleagues. We seized the opportunity to develop an advanced training module to further refine and clarify details of the protocol. And most importantly, it served to calibrate our clinical colleagues to the expectations for excellence in the context of the RCT. You might have expected some resistance from this group of experienced professionals. After all, they are well-respected experts in their practice setting. This has not been the case, however. In fact, all of our physical therapy colleagues have embraced the feedback and shown a sincere interest in demonstrating the excellence deemed necessary for trial initiation. I think this is largely because we have a grounding of mutual respect and we value what each brings to the table. This is the foundation for our academic clinical partnership. This is one example where establishing expectations for excellence can and will benefit not only the controlled trial, but also our profession. In the context of our clinical research, we are setting a standard of care that should and will influence our practice. I have tremendous respect and confidence in our clinical colleagues and know they can and will take responsibility to meet this new and exciting challenge.
Now a few comments on values and attitude. I think there is no place for divisiveness, unhealthy competition, or devaluation. Every aspect of what we do is of value and necessary for our profession to reach its full potential. Neither is there room for an elitist attitude. In my book, what the successful clinical practitioner does is of equal value to what the longtime educator or NIH-funded basic scientist does. As long as it fulfills a need and accomplishes its goals with excellence and integrity. We are equal partners in our quest for excellence. We may differ in our approach and skills, but we are much stronger when we embrace the differences and direct them toward a common goal. I'm proud to know members of my profession who have chosen a career in clinical practice. All I ask is that in some way you share your vast clinical expertise and that you seek opportunities to collaborate with academic centers through research and teaching. With these kinds of connections, we all develop and grow, and it assures that the three pillars, education, research, and practice, are more strongly integrated. I believe that developing the development of strong academic clinical partnerships is essential for advancing the research and clinical education agenda of the profession. Such partnerships are certainly one of the benefits of having strong academic centers of physical therapy. The Foundation for Physical Therapy saw the potential for this well before most when in 2001 they offered a competition for the first clinical research network in physical therapy. In 2002, they funded PT Clin ResNet with a grant to USC for $1.5 million over three years. We provided the network leadership study-specific leadership, and much of the research resources, including data management and additional monetary support. Our partner academic institutions at Northwestern, Southwest Missouri State, and UCLA provided study-specific leadership along with our clinical research partners at Rancho that together allowed for the successful completion of three phase one and one phase two randomized control trial across a diversified set of disability conditions, including stroke, chronic spinal cord injury, and low back pain, and cerebral palsy. I bring this up here because I believe the network model is an excellent example of a true academic clinical partnership. However, without an adequate research infrastructure and financial support provided by the academic center, PT ResNet would never have succeeded. Indeed, successful clinical research programs without academic center backing are rarely possible today, as they were when the intellectual strongholds for physical therapy were found in clinical settings at the premier rehabilitation centers around the country. The network model has been embraced successfully by our neighbors in Canada, and to a far greater extent than it has been in the United States. I think Carol Richards can attest to that. I believe this model should be explored further, especially as a particularly efficient means to conduct multi-site clinical trial research in physical therapy. The academic center can provide the core leadership, and the participating clinical sites do what they are good at, implementing focused interventions. It is a win-win arrangement one that benefits both sides in the process. The old notion that the academic center is an island, an ivory tower, isolated from the clinical practice world, is completely shattered by the partnership model. In fact, by investing in the development of strong academic centers of physical therapy, we would be well positioned for achieving Vision 2020. Using one of Paul Covey's habits of highly effective people, we must begin with the end in mind. We will need to shore up our image and reputation from outside the profession if we want to, as Vision Vision 20 says, to be recognized by consumers and other healthcare professionals and agencies as the practitioners of choice for the diagnosis of, interventions for, and prevention of impairments functional limitations, 
and disabilities related to movement function and health. We will need to get to work. I want to take you on a little personal journey to provide an important context for this vision. I've been a physical therapist for 36 years. I'm very proud of that claim and proud of my profession and how far it has come since I began as a practitioner in 1973. In one sense, my career in physical therapy has come full circle. Having cut my clinical teeth at Rancho, where I held my first job in physical therapy, I continued to work at Rancho for three years as a staff therapist on the neurology service until I left for Great Britain, where I practiced at King's College Hospital for six months in what they called the Annex. This was where most of the neurology patients were sent for rehabilitation. King's was one of the meccas for the Bobath approach. Notice I didn't say NDT, I said Bobath, because there apparently is a distinction. I'll tell you one story to illustrate how far we have come from that era in our practice, or not. Mind you, I had just come from Rancho, where Dr. Perry's observational gait analysis was born, and key to proper gait alignment and limb progression was this concept of roll-off, not push-off, afforded by the proper alignment, strength, and timing of the plantar flexor muscles. Of course, most patients with hemiparesis did not have adequate plantar flexor control, and so we usually provided them with an ankle-foot orthosis. By contrast to King's College Hospital, any device or equipment was strictly forbidden. The idea was that if the therapist had proper handling skills, this would be more than sufficient for achieving optimal motor control and learning. On this particular afternoon, one of my American colleagues who was working there went into one of the locked storage closets and found a quad cane. She gleefully brought it out and handed it to her patients, instructed her in the use, and began ambulating her across the gym. All of a sudden, in a loud scream, from the other side of the room, I heard one of the British supervisors boom, what are you doing? My American colleague had sinned and violated the doctrine of the purest Bobath approach to patient care. At that moment, I realized how fortunate I had been to have my initial clinical experience at Rancho, where we were encouraged to be independent thinkers, to question existing dogma, to evaluate our outcomes, to engage in our own problem solving, and to always seek improved approaches to rehabilitation. I went back to Rancho, and after my time in England, and traveling around Europe, visiting various physical therapy centers in France and Germany. It was after that period away from the United States that I realized what a unique opportunity Rancho offered across the board for education, research, and practice. At that time in the UK, and still today in certain countries in Europe, physical therapists, or physiotherapists as they are often referred to, are viewed as technicians following physician orders, but not functioning as full-fledged healthcare providers. I remember distinctly being advised by the senior leadership at Rancho that I would have to put my independent spirit in check when in the UK and learn to obey the physician's orders. After all, they followed a more hierarchical model where the PT was relatively low in the pecking order and certainly not capable of translating the science into the reason-to-practice decision. In sharp contrast, my Rancho experience was one of equal collaboration with the physician and therapy team. I had been treated as an equal during our team meetings and expected to demonstrate expertise in clinical decision-making for the goal of the patient. I remember distinctly the experience of presenting the physical therapy findings on rounds to Dr. Perry and the physician team she led. I don't know if it is still done this way today, but we would briefly present the evaluation findings and then demonstrate the patient's functional capability, in this case to Dr. Perry and the entire rehabilitation team. I remember how important it was to justify my treatment plan with evidence, not only the reported evidence, but also the demonstration. People talked about how nervous they were in presenting their case. I remember one OT uh, for example, 
you know, the patient was there with their affected arm up in the mobile arm support. The OT was so nervous, she presented the other arm. <laughs> but this kind of experience, uh, the, you know, what I remember was that Dr. Perry treated the therapist with the same expectations and respect as the physician residents and fellows. She did not tolerate a poorly presented case or response from anyone. These weekly rounds were a rigorous exercise, but one that we all benefited from, in large part because of the high expectations. On the other hand, and the tremendous mutual respect on the other. The whole experience is captured well by one of my most favorite authors, Maya Angelou's words. I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. I returned to Rancho after my UK experience because I realized there was no better place to be and accepted a job as the clinical instructor on the adult neurology service. It was there where I had the good fortune to work side by side by a talented and dedicated physical therapist, Jacqueline Montgomery. At the time, Jackie was the PT supervisor for adult neurology. She was a superb role model who intuitively knew how to challenge and at the same time nurture the clinical careers of her staff. She did so by giving me a number of opportunities and challenges, but mostly by believing in me, even when I had my own doubts. She had an innate sense of how to effectively grow careers and to mentor junior clinicians to their full potential. This was clearly a turning point in my career, and I will forever be indebted to her for the critical experience she enabled at a critical time in my professional development. I left Rancho after nearly 10 years of clinical experience in 1982 to follow my yearning for science and went back to the university environment in pursuit of the skills that would enable a research career in physical therapy. At the time, putting physical therapy and research together was, um, would almost qualify as an oxymoron. However, when I spoke to Helen Hislop this past November, she reminded me that even Mary McMillan was an evidence-based practitioner. It is just that there was very little evidence in those days to support what PTs did. I have Anne Van Sant to thank for pointing me to the work of Richard Schmidt, a behavioral movement scientist who had recently moved to UCLA. I went to study with Dick and spent the first year explaining to him why it might be important for a physical therapist to learn the science behind movement control and learning. He thought physical therapy only dealt with hardware problems, as he called them, broken bones and torn nerves. This is an example of the outside perspective that we had and may still have. He had no idea that we also dealt with software problems, including movement planning and learning. However, it was a rude awakening when I got to UCLA for graduate work and realized that very little of my entry-level PT education, nor even my advanced master's in physical therapy from USC, would count toward my PhD degree in kinesiology. It was around this critical period of focused academic work during my doctoral studies and a two-year postdoctoral fellowship in behavioral neuroscience at the University of Wisconsin where the stage was set for the opportunities and challenges that lay ahead. Although I had to take a leave from any clinical work during that period, except for a small stint doing home health, which was a rude awakening, and uh, seeing one private patient, I was fortunate to receive a doctoral scholarship award from the Foundation for Physical Therapy to support me during the last few years of my doctoral studies. I am thankful to the Foundation for that early investment in my training. I would say that they made a reasonably good investment, particularly given that I am standing here before you today, some 23 years later, articulating a vision for our profession. It says something about the commitment our profession has to the academic enterprise and to training the next generation of researchers in physical therapy. Many of my own PhD students have benefited from the pods mechanism that allows them to focus full-time on their studies. This investment has already begun to bear fruits, as evidenced by a new breed of researchers, like Amy Bastian, 
Adele Field Fauté, Chris Powers, and John Buford, just to name a few, whose work has led to new understandings with important implications for therapy. There were a number of my colleagues around the period I finished postdoctoral studies who, upon completing rigorous academic degrees uh, in related fields, could not see their way back to academic programs in physical therapy, and many decided to leave the profession altogether. Others found their way back but were not provided with the necessary resources or had not been sufficiently prepared to grow their research careers or to participate in the development of academic physical therapy. Instead, they were faced with the choice to abandon their hard-earned research skills for faculty positions and institutions with a strong emphasis on professional education and few opportunities for research. I'm sad to say that this problem has not gone away. Only recently I learned that one of our PhD programs was restricted by the dean from enrolling any new students. Apparently the faculty, most of whom had obtained advanced doctoral degrees from the same institution and program, the kind of grow-your-own approach, were considered insufficiently prepared. Neither was there any research infrastructure to support a PhD program. In this case, not only do the faculty suffer, but the program suffers and the reputation of our academic programs and profession suffer. It is my belief that part of the brain drain now and during earlier periods in our academic development is the paucity of academic institutions capable of supporting the research enterprise of the profession. As a result, a few of our distinguished researchers have their primary appointments in research centers outside of physical therapy or receive their salaries from non-PT programs. Good examples are Faye Horak and Steve Wolf. At the most, some would take courtesy appointments in physical therapy if such a program existed at their institution, but generally in these cases, the physical therapy program could not provide the infrastructure needed to support a vigorous research program. The good news is that this situation is improving, and it is certainly better than it was when I finished my postdoc in 1989. NIH funding for rehabilitation has increased. Though the exact number is hard to extract from the CRISP database, there appears to be an increase in the number of physical therapists garnering NIH training and research grants than ever before. The problem, of course, is that only recently has physical therapy been viewed on a par with many of the other healthcare professions, such as pharmacy, dentistry, and nursing. And only recently have we established a culture of academic program leaders who understand what is required to build quality academic programs of physical therapy and to be successful members of the universities within which they reside. I am convinced that the single most important aspect for the survival of the profession of physical therapy and for its external reputation is going to be the quality of its academic programs. Without such programs, we will be unable to keep up with the increasing demands to develop the evidence for our practice. Our profession has grown and has begun to mature as evidenced by the previous analysis, but its success and prosperity is not guaranteed. We have seen a proliferation of entry-level programs as of today, there are 211 accredited programs in the U.S., 196 of which are approved for the, offering the DPT. Of the 196, 135 granted the degree in 2008. There were also five programs in active development and an unknown number being considered by institutions. And we'll offer the DP, all will offer the DPT. The relevant question for the future is, how many of these programs can support our research enterprise? Sue Campbell warned of this problem in her Macmillan lecture nine years ago in 2000. She said, and I quote, to look at the big picture of physical therapy research, we should consider the institutional settings needed to support our burgeoning research enterprise. In professions such as medicine and nursing, the faculties in major research universities produce a constant stream of data in support of practice and development of new approaches to physical care, to patient care. Physical therapy programs in such research universities may become an endangered species as academic administrators reflect on our changing job market, 
the quality and quantity of our science and their efforts to deal with the limitations of funding for higher education, especially when they are faced with APTA's position on proliferation of education programs, end quote. In 2000, we did not have the financial crisis that we have today, and that has significant implications for our professional education programs. Returning to my own story, after completing postdoctoral studies, I was fortunate in finding my way back to PT at one of the strongest academic programs in the country. It was Lucinda Baker, chair of the PT department at that time, who offered me a faculty position in 1990 and gave me startup funds to build my laboratory. It is in large part because of the tremendous vision, academic prowess, and strong leadership of Helen Hislop before and Jim Gordon now that the USC Division of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy has not only survived in a Research One university, but that it has been able to grow the careers of its talented faculty and to develop the important clinical and research collaborations inside and outside the institution. The biokinesiology program and its interdisciplinary collaboration serve to a large degree to strengthen the academic arm of our profession. Further, we have identified a niche for the development of clinical research programs of non-pharmacologic complex interventions. There are multiple areas of funded clinical research, research programs involving stroke, Parkinson's disease, cerebral palsy, aging, ACL injury, tendinopathy, low back pain, aerobic fitness uh, in children, and the influence of hormone replacement on skeletal muscle, just to name a few. Most of these programs have been successful in garnering grant support from NIH or various foundations, but without the substantial investment by our division in building a culture of clinical research and a research infrastructure, none of these programs would be possible. There is no doubt in my mind that were it not for the unique coalition of the academic and professional program at USC, certainly my research and teaching career would not have been possible. And this is likely the same for many of my colleagues at USC as well. In this environment, I have been and continue to be surrounded by incredible people from whom I, I am continually challenged to think in new ways, consider new approaches, and from whom I continue to learn. I am so grateful for this opportunity and for the wisdom and efforts our academic leadership has extended. So what are the current challenges and opportunities? In reading the compendium of previous Macmillan lectures, I was struck by the tremendous range of messages from the last 39 years. In most cases, the message was pertinent and shaped by the contextual issues confronting the profession and the person at the time. You could claim that as a profession, we have, continued, we have come a long way since 1964 when Mildred Elson gave the first Macmillan lecture. However, we have spent considerable time focused inward on self-identity, self-development, and self-assessment. While this approach has been important for our own growth and development, it is now the time to make a concerted effort to turn the lens outward and ask how we are viewed from the outside, not be limited by our inner vision. Many of the same conditions that drove Mary McMillan to found our profession in 1921 have come back wearing a more modern face, represented by the ravages of a much more sophisticated war that saves many more lives than in all previous wars, but by contrast, leaves them shattered from blast injuries to the head, amputations, and the elusive post-traumatic stress disorder. At the same time, the incidence of chronic health conditions such as diabetes, obesity, and stroke are also on the rise. The current generation of retirees is almost the healthiest, longest-lived, best-educated, and most affluent in America's history. Between the year 2000 and 2030, the number of Americans over 65 will more than double, from 35 million to 71.5 million. By 2030, one of four Americans will be over 65. 
Beyond a doubt, the most important concern today is the miserably fractured healthcare system in the U.S., one that is embarrassingly inadequate for a nation that once set the standard for healthcare quality in the world. In 2001, the Institute of Medicine Committee on Quality of Healthcare in America published a report crossing the quality chasm. In it were recommendations for a new health system for the 21st century. They called for all healthcare organizations, professional groups, and private and public purchasers to pursue six major aims. Specifically, that healthcare should be safe, effective, patient-centered, timely, efficient, and equitable. The U.S. health system spends a higher portion of its gross domestic product than any other country, but only ranks 37th out of 191 countries according to the, its performance. The challenge is to develop a system that will improve performance and reduce costs. Are we positioned to do this? We should be able to provide data on the degree to which physical therapists deliver care that is safe, effective, patient-centered, timely, efficient, and equitable. I am afraid that we have not measured these outcomes, let alone even considered looking at them. I hope I am wrong about this. Given that healthcare reform was not considered an important enough item on the agenda for the previous White House administration, little has changed during the last eight years since the report was published. If anything, the situation has gotten even worse to the point where we have one of the highest infant mortality rates, if not the highest, in the world. The good news is that under the current administration, we expect massive changes, beginning with proposals to Congress as early as next week. This presents both an opportunity and a challenge to our profession. We must be smart and seize the opportunities and meet the challenges if we are to survive the changes and become part of the solution. Some of the opportunities I hope we embrace include telehealth, advanced technologies using remote communication, and novel healthcare delivery systems. Last year, John Wallace wrote a compelling piece on the need for outcome-based compensation. He argued eloquently for better alignment between the payment for our practice and the patient's goals. He said, research has shown that paying healthcare providers for their success in treating patients better aligns current per clinical performance with patient goals than do traditional salary and pay for production methods. This gets back to the idea of standards of excellence in clinical practice. Paying for quality and outcomes, rather than for the number of services or the amount of time spent treating, will entail a tremendous cultural shift for physical therapists. But I believe it will be necessary to achieve the goals of Vision 2020. We have advocated strongly for evidence-based practice. We have begun to see the rewards of this movement as we integrate the model into our education programs. And we have developed new clinical research models at the phase three clinical trial level in our unique area of expertise, that of complex interventions aimed to enhance recovery and affect rehabilitation, return to work, and the meaningful activities that develop, that define a high quality of life. I believe we still have a way to go to make our practice more patient-centered. There is considerable literature on behavioral change and eliciting self-management strategies through collaboration and problem-solving that have only begun to be tapped in the context of physical therapy. On a parallel front, the basic scientists among us have made inroads into the traditionally sacred community once reserved for bench scientists from biology and the physical sciences now that includes social scientists. We have seen the traditional walls crumbling between parent disciplines of chemistry, physics, and physiology, and the emergence of new interdisciplinary fields such as social cognitive neuroscience. Our profession is represented on advisory boards, think tanks, and prestigious review panels. Some have gone on to top-level administrative positions as deans and university administrators. But these advances are not uniform across the healthcare profession, professions. 
I have been surprised by the various battles that have arisen around the idea that a physical therapist, moi, is leading a national multi-site controlled trial concerned with recovery of the arm and hand after stroke. To me, this concern only makes sense if we tear the body apart as happens when you enter a black hole. Something like this. Okay, you get the arm, and I'll take the leg. Where does the trunk go? And who gets the heart? More importantly, who gets the brain? I actually promised Chris Powers he could have the patella. (laughs) Actually, nothing ever gets out of the black hole, I am told. And so, in the end, nobody gets anything. Kidding aside, you can see that this is a pointless argument, and yet it continues in large part because of professional insecurities. In the end, we are all in this for the good of the patient. In my view, these childish battles may only serve to compromise our reputation as we embark on a period of significant healthcare reform. A short story to illustrate the territory problem in real life. The wife of a good friend of mine recently broke her radius when a biker ran, over her, ran her over. In addition, she sustained a rotator cuff tear in the same accident. She started seeing a hand therapist for rehabilitation after the wrist fracture healed, and they began working on the forearm. Remember, the wrist is connected to the forearm. Connect, you know. But they told her it was her choice to stay there or go over to PT to get her shoulder treated. She was told that they both do the shoulder. The approach we have chosen is to reach across the aisle and provide leadership for developing interdisciplinary education programs focused on clinical trial research and rehabilitation. Clearly, these models have worked in the area of pediatrics, so there is some precedence already. We are working currently with our colleagues in OT on a proposal for the 2010 AOTA meeting. Our hope is that demonstrating a successful collaboration in rehabilitation science will help us move past the fractured body problem to a focus on meaningful outcomes for the whole patients we treat. I see the opportunities ahead as ones that will allow us to focus on what is important, the whole person, and to identify what will improve their health and quality of life whether that need might involve us or not. In fact, this is the focus of our recently funded Rehabilitation Engineering Research Center from NIDR, involving people aging with or into disability. This is a partnership between Rancho and USC. The research and development activities represent a true collaborative effort between biomedical engineering, physical therapy, occupational therapy, gerontology, information technology, and the Institute for Creative Technologies that includes virtual reality systems. We have taken a leadership role in creating this center and in the integration of several emerging technologies that can be developed to benefit those aging with a disability. The research infrastructure of our academic center in physical therapy had an enabling influence on the development of these interdisciplinary collaborations and the creation of the Rehabilitation Engineering Center. I point this out as another benefit to having strong academic centers for physical therapy. They can serve as a nexus for interdisciplinary collaborations that benefit healthcare. Why then does our survival hinge on the quality of our academic programs? Over the last year and starting back in November, I conducted a series of interviews in connection with the preparation for this lecture. I asked the same questions during each interview. One of my questions was, how would you rank the relative importance of each of the three pillars of the physical therapy profession, education, practice, and research? Most of the executive leadership I interviewed at APTA headquarters thought they were equally important and that you could not really have one without the other. Bob Batarla, our CFO, was an exception. He said it was a no-brainer. Education was the most important. Next, of practice and research, both were tied for second place. 
He argued that without practice, you don't know what is going on, and without research, you don't know what will be going on. Yet when you examine the recent strategic plan for APTA, the objectives for education are almost entirely focused on clinical education and post-professional ed- clinical residencies and fellowship programs. There was only one objective to, quote, assess the current and projected needs in physical therapy academic education. It is concerning when the group of academic administrators is organized as a special interest group and considered primarily a forum or venue for networking and exchange of ideas, but not for strong leadership. I am aware that there is a proposal to form a new organization of academic physical therapy programs that wishes to take a strong and active leadership role in setting the agenda for improving the profession. I am encouraged by this proposal and consider that it will become even more important for giving guidance as we navigate through the impending healthcare reform. It was Jim Gordon who articulated the best answer to my three-pillar question. He said, and I quote, this is a trick question, of course, I wouldn't think of these as separate and distinct pillars. The overall purpose of our profession is to better the health of humans, and of course, clinical practice is where that happens. But sound clinical practice rests on a foundation that includes research, the evidence, and education, professional and post-professional. Without this foundation, our practice is no more than quackery. Furthermore, both research and education depend on well-trained and dedicated physical therapist faculty members with access to adequate resources. These can only exist within strong academic physical therapy programs at universities that are committed to research and professional education. So how can our profession achieve its full potential? First, we must invest in building strong academic centers in physical therapy. This is essential if we want to be recognized by consumers and other healthcare professionals and agencies as the practitioners of choice for what we do. Second, we must build effective academic clinical partnerships within the profession. This could be done initially by using the strongest academic programs to either singly or jointly lead the effort. PT ClinResNet was an example. We should look to our neighbors in Canada for current models of effective networks. Finally, we must acknowledge the complexity of the problem and develop effective interdisciplinary collaborations outside the profession with engineering, medicine, behavioral scientists, and other healthcare professionals, all with common but unique strengths. Let's stop pulling the patient into parts. We can step to the plate and take a leadership role in this process. Remember, we are change agents. This is what we do with our patients, and we are passionate about our profession and its future. Thank you. I do have a few acknowledgments. I want to acknowledge a few members of my family and longtime friends who have joined us here today. My partner in life, my husband, Kip Thorne, who not only gave me the black hole slide, but has been a continuous source of inspiration and moral support for the last 26 years. My good friend, Margot Masante, who took time away from her busy schedule to come to Baltimore and be surrounded by a group of PTs. Beth Fisher, both a longtime friend and now a colleague at USC. Susan Warrench, a local practicing physical therapist in the Baltimore area who met, we met, I met at USC in the late 70s when we were both uh, doing our master's degree there. A few people who are not physically here today but are here in spirit. Uh, my parents, Saul and Sylvia Winstein, who were always a source of strength and encouragement, 
and my brother Bruce and his family Joan and my niece and nephew Allison and Keith. They stayed behind in Chicago to support my brother, who is battling cancer. And finally, I want to thank my USC colleagues. Uh, I think you don't know how much uh, I enjoy coming to work every day because of you. And a very special thanks to Steve Wolf for his mentorship in my career and for being a very special friend at the same time. Thank you. Carolee, thank you for a most inspiring and thought-provoking lecture and for not writing that letter. <laughs> On behalf of the American Physical Therapy Association, I wish to present you with the Mary McMillan Lecture Medallion and a certificate in commemoration of the lecture that you have presented to us today. After that, I'll give you a bouquet of roses from APTA as well as a special bouquet of flowers sent personally by Helen Hislop, who sends her regrets for not being able to be here with us. Thank you so much. Thank you again very much, and this concludes this year's Mary McMillan Lecture. Enjoy the rest of the conference.